HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at cheesestateuniversity.com. So the reason I want to have this conversation is because it, I've, I've seen so many things online, uh, in conversations, I've heard this, where people refer to the traditional clay copita. Always in English, always with that accent. <laughs> <laughs> traditional clay copita. Okay, um, well, how, how does that look like? Why do they think that's traditional? Right. Well, that's well. Why do they think that? I think it's because they've kind of been told that uh, by uh, by the mezcal industry as it is. It's really just a bunch of people. But um, I, like, I get the sense that we've sort of been sold a bill of goods. Well, and I, I think the obvious question is: Have I ever had that in Mexico, uh, in a in a palenque or in a place where they traditionally make these spirits? And I would say no. They usually give me in a plastic cup, in, uh, in whatever they can have. Sometimes a vaso velador if they're really fancy. Yeah, well, A little no. candle holder. That was Lou Bank and Chava Perivan, hosts of Agave Road Trip on HRN, debating the traditional vessel for drinking mezcal. Is it the clay copita? A plastic cup? Or is there simply no singular proper way to serve mezcal? Discussions like this are not unfamiliar in the culinary world, where debates around what's traditional or what's authentic are constantly spinning. So much so that numerous organizations have been formed to protect the authenticity of various dishes and production methods. In Mezcal's case, there is an organization whose name translates to the Mexican Regulatory Council for the Quality of Mezcal. The stated purpose of this group and others like it is to uphold quality through strict regulations and guidelines. But how do these regulations potentially push people out? For instance, with mezcal, some claim that these strict guidelines can be exclusionary to historical distillation practices and indigenous community structures and instead push forward a framework for spirits molded after colonial European countries. 
What does it mean when someone's mezcal doesn't meet those guidelines? Is it no longer considered authentic? This week on Meet and 3, we're unpacking the meaning of authenticity in the culinary world. We explore the pressures authenticity can have on individuals and how there may be more than one right version of the way to cook a dish. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and 3 on HRN. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. What happens when food becomes an indicator of your own authenticity? Katie Ruther explores this idea in the context of transracial Asian adoptees. What does it mean for us to be our authentic selves? What role does food play in asserting or challenging those notions of authenticity? As a transracial Chinese adoptee, these questions can feel especially complex. I think adoptees, again, specifically transracial adoptees, have a very unique perspective on authenticity that I think bucks a lot of the kind of black and white dynamics of this is authentic, what is the most authentic, and do you have a right to cook this? This is my friend Tongyuan Duville. When I met Tongyuan two years ago, we connected instantly over our shared identities as Chinese adoptees and our collective interest in all things food and farming. Recently, as I continued to examine narratives around authenticity in my own life, I decided to give her a call. Growing up, my parents prided themselves on cooking authentic versions of dishes from across the world. Authenticity became the destination of every cooking expedition. The correct ingredients, equipment, and recipes were seen as the vehicles for getting us there. Just as Mapo Tofu called for broad bean paste from Sichuan, a well-seasoned wok and a recipe from a Chinese cookbook— Our Neapolitan-style pizza required double-O flour, a wood-fired oven, and expert advice from Italian pizza makers. As an adult, I approached my own cooking with the same attitude. Only now do I realize the limitations of my vision. It's interesting trying to create a dish, you know, Chinese dish and cooking for the first time. I don't have any food memory that I'm chasing or, like, way that I want it to taste. And so, like, I can go off of the measurements given in a recipe, and I can definitely tweak it just to, like, my personal preferences of, like, how salty or how sweet I like things, but there's no nostalgia component to it or food memory that I'm chasing. And it's interesting, like, a lot of immigrant food writers and chefs and talk about, like, this food memory and like creating, you know, there's like this multi-generational memory that they feel like they have, and I just don't have that. Although I also lack the multi-generational food memory that Tang Yuan refers to, I do have many memories associated with home-cooked Chinese food. My parents would cook recipes out of their Chinese-American cookbooks on a semi-regular basis. We use specific dishes such as dumplings and lion's head meatballs to anchor our annual holiday traditions. After spending time in China as an adult, I returned to the States with a new take on authentic Chinese food. 
Now I had complex flavor memories and nostalgic cravings for meaty soups, millet congee, and dressed tofu, all grounded in experiences with so-called real Chinese food. I tried desperately to reproduce the flavors I longed for. My failure to do so felt like a reflection of my Chineseness or lack thereof, as if being unable to recreate the exact dishes I had in China somehow diminished the authenticity of my Chinese identity. It's like in the pursuit of authenticity is where it's so obvious and apparent, and you have to navigate so much more, like where that there is a significant gap. As Korean adoptee researcher Kathleen Chosuk Berquist writes. Food creates an awareness of the estranged position adoptees find themselves in and the incompleteness of their cultural memory. Instead of feeding a hunger, it exposes a void. Indeed, attempting to cook and consume supposedly authentic Chinese food exposed my lack of cultural knowledge and marked me as an outsider. Suddenly, engaging with Chinese food became another way to prove that I wasn't Chinese enough. Over time, though, I tried to let go of my rigid standards and accept that nothing I make will rival what exists in my memory. As I embraced my version of Chinese food as good enough, I finally recognized my experiences as a Chinese American adoptee as Chinese enough. I think I've done a lot of thinking too in the past couple of years about the connection between authenticity and just like confidence in claiming it as yours. In the wider scope, you know, there's this is authentically Chinese or whatever, but that there is the idea of authenticity that is like authentic to you. And what is authentic to me is I'm was born in China. I grew up with a white parent, but I grew up in a city with a variety of Asian people from many generations. I really like food. But I did not grow up around a significant amount of Chinese food, particularly Chinese home cooking. So what's going to come out is something that's like authentic to that collection of identities. As if on cue, Tang Yuan told me exactly what I wanted and needed to hear. At the end of the day, authenticity is subjective. What's authentic to your unique constellation of identities and experiences will be different from what's authentic to mine. For our next story, Vaidehi Kudyadi takes us across the globe to France for a deeper look at French cultural heritage and how food can help preserve cultural identity. What dishes come to your mind when you think about French cuisine? In all likelihood, your mind probably went to the buttery, flaky croissant, the perfect macaron, or a freshly baked French baguette. An irreplaceable element of French dining tables the baguette is a quintessential expression of Frenchness. And on November 30th, 2022, the Committee of Intangible Cultural Heritage of UNESCO announced that they would be adding this baked good to the list of intangible heritage. Joining other culinary traditions such as kimchi making and Turkish coffee culture, the baguette's inscription in the ICH list had solidified its place 
as a representative of a national culture and identity. Images of French delegates waving their beloved baguette to celebrate the historic decision quickly flooded the internet. After close to two years of lobbying, UNESCO had officially cemented the savoir faire of the French baguette's place in culinary and cultural history. At the same time, this recognition also works to present a specific idea of authentic French identity and culture. But when we conflate a particular food with a broad identity, who gets left out? The idea that it is a universal symbol, which is a form of social cohesion happening around sharing the baguette, is a bit too general. My name is Jenny Herman. I'm currently a doctoral fellow with the FWO at KU Leuven in Belgium. And there for the last years, the last several years, I've been working on a project around uh, the idea of safeguarding savoir-faire and the role of culinary heritage initiatives in building national identity, especially in France. Jenny's research at KU Leuven also seeks to question politics of inclusion and exclusion within ICH efforts. Naturally, the French baguette's inclusion in the ICH list raised some concerns, specifically about what groups might be excluded. According to her, one of the elements of the of this candidature, for instance, was a, a list of many, many letters, including small letters written by children, average um, French people, such as memories of their parents making a little tartine of chocolate and baguette in the morning for them, things like this. And this is also something that can be very lovely, but has another aspect which is a bit problematic because this is not indeed representative of all French people. This is representative of a specific view of France, a specific view which is, of course, a reality for some, but is also very much an exported view of France. So this isn't something, a memory that is universally shared. For instance, a French Lebanese family may be having a different type of bread in the morning. France, like many other nations, is increasingly multicultural and multi-ethnic. So it naturally follows that not every French national sees the baguette as a significant part of their own identity. Despite this, French cuisine, or authentic French cuisine, is often seen through a particular lens, and it is now affirmed by ICH recognition. I wouldn't say that there shouldn't be uh, intangible cultural heritage, but I would say that it has become such a race for acknowledgement that it's functioning almost like a, a certification, a must-have certification. So, what is the alternative? I think that because especially of the tensions which come with that, reinforcing borders, reinforcing an idea, a rather homogenous idea of nationality, um, something that I find more encouraging is looking beyond borders. So something that really inspires me in this is the idea of looking at ways that culinary traditions emerged or traveled or 
have shared identities actually and ways to celebrate these kinds of things ways that those could be developed into community events or cooking demonstrations or cookbooks which do not essentialize but rather celebrate the intersection of a lot of different um, traditions which eventually give rise to what may be known as a national cuisine. And I think that France is a great example of this because, of course, it didn't emerge alone as the as the top of the gastronomic field, but it was something that developed with influences over a long amount of time and, in fact, has a lot of properties that are very much thanks to different waves of migration which have enriched its culinary landscape. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, incredible training resources are. They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development. You can pop over to the Quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, And so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University. Cheese State's three-part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry-level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter. The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University Field Guide. Um, And that is a three-volume resource. It's all digital online. At the end of the course... Students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate. Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter, like, what is rennet? And like, why is this cheese so expensive? And can pregnant people even eat cheese? At Cheese State, you're among experts, you're among scholars, you're among cheese lovers, and most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at CheeseStateUniversity.com. Welcome back to Meat and 3. What makes a dish authentic to a place? Is it where you source your ingredients? Is it how the locals eat it? Bianca Garcia gets into the mix of this question with the Filipino fruit salad. This is a controversy between us as old as time. As old as our friendship. As old as our friendship. We've always disagreed. I brought my best friend, Sophie Openshaw, onto the show because I needed to resolve this five-year-long disagreement once and for all. Is it a crime to make Filipino fruit salad with coconut milk? Before we go on, cleanse your mind of the fruit salad from that one Hotel Continental breakfast, where the strawberry juice dyed your honeydew and the orange slices sagged across your fork. Filipino fruit salad is something completely different. We toss together canned fruit cocktail translucent pineapple, vibrant maraschino cherries, and all, with the ambrosia that is condensed milk. At least, that's how the recipe books have you make it. So, 
the way I like to make fruit salad is really mostly governed by the fact that I am very lactose intolerant and two out of my three brothers growing up or still are also allergic to dairy or lactose intolerant. So my fruit salad has, I use a mix of fresh and canned fruit. When I would make it at home, I would also kind of, you know, whatever fruit kind of needs using up and is in that flavor profile. Like if I had fresh pineapple, I would put that into, you know, I wouldn't stick to canned. Right. But then instead of condensed milk, I kind of do mix like half coconut milk, Mm -hmm. half some other non-dairy milk, then a little bit of sugar and vanilla extract. So it's definitely not as like... Oh, you have vanilla extract in there. Yeah. I mean, just because like condensed milk has such like a sweet and rich flavor. Ugh, blasphemy. Imagine fresh apples or oat milk in your fruit salad. The only concession I make is adding fresh grapes, since my grandpa likes it that way. Sophie and I do, however, agree that this is a food meant to be eaten frozen. It's kind of like an easy, like, fast ice cream with mix-ins. Exactly, especially when you freeze it. Yeah, you have to freeze it. You have to freeze it. Uh-huh. Controversial, too, but and I'm glad we can agree on one thing. No, 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 we- it has to be frozen. Maybe you can tell, but this is a conversation that Soph and I have had many times over the years. The reason that we keep rehashing it is not just because we enjoy a sprightly debate, though that we do. Truly, it's about a connection to home. Sophie and I grew up down the street from one another in Hong Kong. I in a household of Spanish-Filipino parents, and her to a Filipino-Chinese mother and an English father. We now go to school together halfway across the world where we use food to stay connected. We share memories, traditions, but not this fruit salad. To get closer to this idea of what traditional Filipino food is, I asked Sophie how she characterizes the cuisine. What's real Filipino food to you? (sighs) Oh my gosh. Um, It's so beyond chicken adobo and Jollibee. But those aren't not real. Those are so real. Those are so real. But there's definitely, like, a real Filipino flavor palette that, like, transcends all. It's, like, this love for, like, certain flavors, but also, like, sour. I think, you know, even if you're eating, like, fiesta food, there's always, you have your, like, different vinegars. Everything is, like, in a guava broth or a tamarind broth, and I love sour. So what's with the uber-sweet condensed milk in the fruit salad? And what's with the canned fruit? Filipino fruit sales are one of the largest contributors to the GDP, with the major crops being banana, pineapple, mango, and calamansi, which I just learned. There's calamansi, there's not really um, an English name for it. Calamandin, there is. It's, calam- it's called calamandin. Are you kidding me? So there you go, calamandin. Digression aside, You'd wonder why Filipino fruit salad uses canned, non-native fruits, especially with such an abundance and array of beautiful local fruit. The answer is Philippine-American relations and the colonization of taste. Before we get to canned foods, let's start with some history. The American occupation of the Philippines, wrought with racism and oppression, lasted for 48 years from 1989 to 1946. Did you know that Rudyard Kipling's poem, The White Man's Burden, was written as to lament the task of civilizing Filipinos, described as, quote-unquote, half-devil, half-child? We can learn about these colonial relations by looking into canned food. Colonial personnel living in the Philippines 
were sent canned food to sustain them. They deemed native foods to be filthy and contaminated. Filipinos, on the other hand, adopted canned foods as a way to signal wealth and culturedness by way of being closer to Americans, closer to whiteness. Filipina-American novelist Elaine Castillo has an article called Colonialism in a Can, which details the politics of culinary exchange from and since the U.S.'s imperial presence in the Philippines. Castillo writes that, quote, The way Filipinos took on canned food ended up appropriating, embellishing, and then ultimately normalizing, indeed nativizing, an unloved, utilitarian piece of colonial kit. I couldn't have said it better myself. So you have like condensed milk, canned fruit cocktail, but also like spam. I think it has also just like changed the Filipino flavor profile. Mm-hmm. Like people prefer different flavors now. This brings us to taste. Sophie had previously said that Filipinos love sourness, what we call a sim in Tagalog. But we lean towards the taste of American canned food as a way to lead us into a different cultural moment. One that comes years after the American occupation, a place where our people found sweetness under oppression. I don't think it's right to say, like, you know, a taste preference for slightly, like, saltier canned foods. No, there's no such thing as, like, a superior taste preference. But if you want to say, like, maybe yours is more traditional because maybe, even though it uses less of the traditional ingredients, it, it appeases the, the people's flavor profile more, mm-hmm. you know? In the social sciences, taste is not only something that you hold in your mouth. It is about the way that you embody the cultural and political climate that you live in. So when we talk about who has the most traditional Filipino fruit salad, we have to consider taste in both regards. Sophie's fresh fruit tastes like it heralds from our islands, whereas mine summons the stories of people from our history. What defines authentic food and who can execute authentic cooking are complex questions with equally complicated answers especially when attempting to cook foods outside of your own culture. As our world becomes increasingly globalized, cultural foods are being transmitted and adapted at the speed of light, oftentimes manifesting in fusion and westernized interpretations. And although these adaptations expose various communities to different cuisines, they risk diluting cultural heritage and traditional practices. David Schlosser is the head chef and owner of downtown LA's Shibumi, a Michelin-starred Japanese restaurant and bar. Going beyond California rolls and teriyaki chicken, Shibumi is serving up Japanese delicacies not often represented in American restaurants. David spoke with Akiko Katayama, host of Japan Eats, about his journey from French fine dining to Japanese kaiseki, and his mission to combat LA's overwhelmingly fusion food scene. David grew up in Santa Monica. As a kid, he wasn't exposed to many foods outside of his Jewish-Egyptian heritage, and often ate American food staples. After graduating high school, he took a restaurant summer job that would spark his culinary passion, and in 1996, he graduated from the Culinary Institute of America. 
Soon after, he landed various positions at French Michelin restaurants such as Georges Blanc and Lucas Carton. But it wasn't until a chance trip to Japan that he would find his true calling. It was um, it was the year 2000, and I basically went on a holiday with um, with my friend in Thailand. We had a uh, it was my first time in Asia. We had a quick uh, three day tr- uh, layover in in Japan, and we kind of did all our research on Thailand and didn't know anything about Japan. Anyhow, we went to a, uh, a restaurant, a uh, sushi place, and I just just dropped dead. I mean, I, I started crying at the, at the table. My my buddy thought I was weird, and I'm like, "This is this is intense." Like, uh, that's kind of when I it, it decided me for me to change um, to to Japanese cuisine. I was in Thailand, and I just was thinking about Japan every day. It was it was so it was quite odd. Uh, I feel like it was chosen. After working as a chef in Thailand for a couple of years, David would return to the United States in 2002 to work at Ginza Sushi Co. in Beverly Hills, his first position at a Japanese restaurant. Eventually, David would fulfill his dream of cooking in Japan and worked at various kaiseki restaurants. Kaiseki is a multi-course Japanese meal which utilizes seasonal produce and is often made up of small, intricate dishes. Perhaps one of the most well-known kaiseki restaurants is Miyamaso. Yeah, they were doing foraging, you know, decades before Noma, you know, kind of a thing, uh, where Noma got the credit, but everyone knew Miyamaso was it. Like, they were so strict, they didn't serve fish from the ocean. Mm. All fish was from a river, and all the uh, a lot of the ingredients were foraged in the mountains. Um, they had a pickling house where they were doing pickles for 5, 10, 20 years aged picklings, um, skimono. Um, so really advanced uh, classical kaiseki stuff. In 2016, he opened Shibumi, which, along with its Michelin star, has garnered praise from the likes of esteemed food critic Jonathan Gold. From the beginning, Shibumi's mission has been clear, even in the creation of its name. So Shibumi has a, t- a few different uh, definitions. The kanji for Shibu is uh, bitter, um, and then miwa, taste. So the, the literal definition is bitter taste, but um, it's also representing creative restraint in the arts was the definition that really gravitated towards me. But for David, it's also about doing it right. Whether he's making his own fermented tofu or tofuyo from scratch, sourcing Japan's rarest beef, or composing a delicate seasonal mochi course for shibumi. My main goal was to combat fusion, really. Um, Japan, uh, America is very famous, or LA is even more famous, for changing the cuisine to adapt to the American palate. And it really bothered me because when I went to Japan, it was such a different landscape than how Japanese restaurants are presented in Los Angeles or the United States, for that matter. So my goal was to show extreme respect and try to make the cuisine as pure as possible without fucking it up and changing it and using my own ego to express what I think is cool. Like, stop that. You know, let's just try to make it and make it right and beautiful. It's good. So why would you change it? Why do you manipulate it? Um, To me, it's because you don't understand it. If you have an emotional relationship to a culture or to a cuisine, you actually won't fucking change it. 
I don't think you will. So that's kind of, for me, I just would never do that. So Shibumi was trying to, and still tries to express, you know, Japan to mm. Amer- American people. David's dedication to tradition has not gone unnoticed. In 2020, he was appointed a culinary ambassador by the Japanese government, a position held by only 10 other people in the U.S. In his career, David has found success in making a point to not reinvent the wheel, and although his strict anti-fusion attitude may disregard the benefits and nuances of fusion food, his loyalty to Japanese tradition helps shed a necessary light on authentic Japanese cuisine. While navigating authenticity can be tricky, chefs approaching cooking thoughtfully can help preserve cultural history and contextualize our relationships to the foods we eat. Learn more about our guests and topics from this episode in our show notes. Special thanks this week to Katie Ruther, Bianca Garcia, Stella Maiden, and Vaidehi Kudyadi. Meet and Three is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Matt Patterson, and me, Katie Mosman Wadler. Our audio engineer for this episode is Kevin Chang Barnum. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs> <laughs>